It is a wonderful thing to be keeping another one of God's holy days as we come together, as we are commanded to do. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says that the Apostle Peter wrote to the church, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So as we are here on the day of Pentecost, I'd like to ask you a question, brethren. If God calls us his own special people, does God play favorites? Is God a respecter of persons? Is God impartial? Are we on the inside track? Is that why we're here? Does God just like us more than his other children? Maybe we just are more congenial than the rest of the world. I don't know. Are we better than everyone else? What lesson are we supposed to learn on this day of Pentecost? Of being called out of the world. Is it that God likes us better? I'd like to examine that question a little bit this morning in the time we have on this holy day. The day of Pentecost, first fruits or favorites? First fruits or favorites? Is this the day that we commemorate us winning and the rest of the world going to pot? Let's talk about that. To introduce the subject, let's turn back to the Old Testament, the story of Jacob and Esau. A very familiar story that has been preserved for us. Brethren, aren't you glad that your life is not written down in every detail? Like some of the people in the Bible? I don't know. I'm thankful. Anyway, you know, we we, we can shudder if, if our life and some of the mistakes that we made were written down like are in the Bible. We can learn from them, and that's why they're there, and we are supposed to learn from them. And we learn some things in the in the case of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. Verse 21, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Very key. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Harry. That's what Esau meant. It's Harry. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Heel Grabber, Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Verse 27, 
And so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We had two boys here that were growing up as different as you could imagine. One was rough and tumble, loved to be outside, outdoors, in the wilderness, roaming the wide open spaces and hunting and fishing and all of that. And the other liked to be home. He was more refined. He was content with closer to home activities and that sort of thing. There, there, there was a lot of potential for conflict. But there was something that the parents were doing that was going to make and was making a bad problem worse. You know, Dr. Winnell in the ministerial conference a few weeks ago, in one of his lectures on le- leadership, mentioned when you're confronting a problem, it's like approaching a, a fire with two buckets. One is a bucket of water and one is a bucket of gasoline. And how you deal with that problem determines whether you contain the problem or spread it and make it more explosive. And Isaac and Rebecca were in the process of making this problem even worse. We read through the story in verses 29 through 34 how Esau came in from the field exhausted, sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, and that's what we normally focus on in this story. Very short-sighted and unwise decision by Esau, very manipulative of Jacob. But even that wasn't really the biggest problem the boys would have. There was something else that would happen. Chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see that he called Esau his older son and he said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, go to the field and hunt game for me and make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, this may not seem like a big deal for us. It may seem like he was just going to have a meal and was going to talk to his older son, but there was a lot happening that's unspoken, apparently. Josephus conjectures that what Isaac was talking about was making a sacrifice to God, offering a sacrifice and worshiping God, And this was going to be the transference of the blessings to Abraham that had been passed on to Isaac, that he was going to pass them on to Esau, to the next generation. The blessing of a nation and a company of nations. The blessing of of, uh, being in control of the gates of your enemies. The blessing of having descendants as as, as the sand of the seashore, and through his descendants, all humanity would be blessed. But this was Isaac's intention. Now something else was happening. Apparently Isaac knew better. 
See, there had been a prophecy before that Rebekah was made aware of that the older would serve the younger, that God had chosen Jacob to receive that blessing. Not the, not the double portion birthright, but the blessing of Abraham. And Isaac was going against the will of God. Why? Because Esau was his favorite. He was being partial. So personal emotions and and feelings came in because he was closer to Esau and he was conflicted. So that sets up the drama that's about to unfold. And you know the story in verse 5. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau his son and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. This was going to be a big deal. It's the transference of of the course of history going through this one son. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go to the flock and bring me from... They are two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves, and you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. Rebecca is ready to deceive her own husband. You know, we can think of, being, of Isaac being innocent here. And Rebecca being the manipulative one. Rebecca was wrong. Certainly, God could have worked it out a different way. This was typical of, of, of us human beings getting in the middle of something and, and trying to do it our way. God's going to work it out, but we try to do it our way. But but Isaac was wrong too. <clears throat> so we have two human beings who are who are God-serving, who are good people, who (laughs) he was one of the patriarchs, and yet torn by personal interest. Jacob was terrified, not of deceiving his father, but of being caught. You know, think about it. You know, he said, wait a minute, hold on a second. We're talking about my whole, uh, you know, all of my descendants, my future, and, and what if he finds out that I'm going to be cursed? He wasn't worried about deceiving his father. He just didn't want to get in trouble. We know the story in verse 11. Perhaps my father will feel me. He, I shall seem to he a deceiver to him, and I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said, no, do what I said, everything will be fine. So you know the rest of the story. Jacob put skins on his arms so he'd have the feel and smell of his brother. After a little bit of skepticism, Isaac blessed him, passed on the blessings of Abraham to Jacob. And of course, Esau was absolutely furious when he came back. And the Edomites and the Israelites 
have been at each other's throats ever since. Bible prophecy in Obadiah even talks about that animosity going down all the way to the end time. What do we learn from this story? That we as human beings have a difficult time with partiality. And we find what the sin of partiality brings in the family, among relationships, among brethren. It destroys trust. It destroys confidence. In every direction you can see the relationships in this family that were hurt. Between Jacob and Esau, of course. But think about Isaac and Rebekah. What was their relationship like after that? What about Esau feeling betrayed by Isaac? You know, what about Jacob not totally feeling comfortable with being a part of deceit and seeing his mother lie? He paid for it later through Laban. Every part of this scenario testifies of the sin of partiality. And it's something we human beings must fight. You know, we naturally give the benefit of the doubt to our friends. Have you ever noticed that? When someone that we're close to does something wrong, well, they, they didn't mean it. They, they really had a good heart. You know, they, they had good motives. It's just a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. That's our friend. What happens if someone we're not close to? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing. Even if they don't say anything, I can tell what they're thinking. Brethren, let's apply this to ourselves. It's a universal problem. What about God? Is God that way too? <clears throat> that was our original question. Let's turn over to Malachi chapter 1. And verse 1, is God a respecter of persons? Is he partial? Does he have favorites? Is that why we're here on the day of Pentecost? Because we're just grateful that we're God's favorites. Of course not. We don't believe that. But think about this. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. <clears throat> I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage and the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. And then he talks about how even if they build, I'm going to tear down. And I'll have indignation against them forever. Is God partial? It's pretty important when we think about our relationship with God. What he's like. Is he like us? Is he like human beings? Let's turn over to Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Romans chapter 9 and verse 10 because actually 
Paul talks about this issue. We pick up the story. We're interjecting here in a description and a discussion about how God is dealing with the world. Romans 9 and verse 10, it says, When Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So God had decided long before Esau showed disrespect to his birthright. God had decided that Jacob would be the one he would use. It was said of her, to her, the older shall serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We just read that in Malachi. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God like us? Certainly not, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, which is an interesting parallel now, example. For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You know, it's interesting. He gives the example of Pharaoh that God can use men's arrogance and pride and hard-headedness and hard-heartedness to accomplish his will, to accomplish his plan now. It has nothing to do with ultimate salvation. That God wants all to be saved. He gave Jesus Christ for all as a sacrifice for all men to repent. He has a plan now. And he's using individuals to accomplish that plan. He says sometimes there are vessels for destruction and there are vessels of mercy. You know, our, our, our goal is that we would be a, a vessel he can use of mercy and not of destruction like Pharaoh. But that's our choice. It's up to us. It's interesting, even this word hate that Paul uses when he says that Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It's, it's not, the, the word is not in the same way that we think of. It's the same word when, when Christ said, unless you love me and hate your father and mother and sister and brother, you, are, you cannot be my disciple. It's the same word. It doesn't mean we, we hate our family, but we put God first. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. Going on a little further. Paul explains what was happening. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. He was explaining that Jacob was chosen to accomplish a specific job in this life, on the physical realm. But Jacob's children failed. So now God was working with a different group of people. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. The children of promise, of course, today is the church, those who God is calling now. It doesn't mean just because, as Paul said, the children of the flesh had disqualified. It doesn't mean they're lost forever. Just because Esau was not chosen, it doesn't mean he's lost forever. It doesn't mean that God loves us more than the rest of the world nor that he loved Jacob more than Esau. He was going to use Jacob to accomplish a plan. And he's going to use us if we're willing to accomplish a plan today. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Why the first fruits? Is it just because God likes us more? Leviticus chapter 23. Let's go through a little bit of looking at the plan of what God is accomplishing and what he is, his goal is here below. Because we understand the Holy Days map out that plan. And they show us how God is not partial. How he is the epitome of impartiality. That he sent his son to die for everyone. And it's his will that all would be saved. Notice in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So if we want to be close to God, we, we want to keep his feasts. Because he's in these feasts. So we want to be in these feasts. So that's why we're here. That's why we come together on, on this day. We want to be close to him, and he's here. Verse 3, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings, and we enjoy and celebrate and rejoice in the Sabbath in all of our dwellings, don't we? Every Sabbath that comes around. And it's a reminder that we are not our own. That we did not make ourselves. That God rested on the seventh day. And he's our creator. And he makes the rules. And he's our protector. And he's going to take care of us. 
Every week we have a reminder of that. Verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. The Passover. So we understand that Passover lamb pointed to Jesus Christ who was the perfect Passover lamb. He, even that symbol, symbolism is used in the book of Revelation. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was given for all mankind, not just the children of Jacob, but the children of Esau as well. They don't know it right now, but that doesn't stop it from being true. They will. I'll just read from Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, He will render to each according to his deeds glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God gave his Son to give his life for all. And we learned that through the Passover. All will be given the opportunity to repent. There is no difference. There may be a difference in time order, as he said, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews had the opportunity. They had the oracles of God. <clears throat> there, is, there was the Old Testament congregation. We're going to look at that in a moment. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 6. Notice... He says, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Jesus Christ was perfect. We understand he lived his life without sin. He lived a human life without sin. But we are not perfect. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. No one can claim to be in better standing before God than anyone else. We're on equal footing. We're all on death row. Until we have his sacrifice covering us. The days of unleavened bread show us we have to learn God's law. We have to ingest it. We have to ingest him. And we have to learn our responsibility to keep that law and to grow and overcome. As was mentioned already today, the Israelites apparently received the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost. And it's worth thinking about the law as we keep this day and what it meant for them, what it meant for, for means for us. You know, the law given to Moses and the Israelites was quite revolutionary at the time. More than it's, it, it is, uh, is obvious to us looking back. Nelson's Bible Dictionary says this under the, the heading law. In ancient Near Eastern law codes, law was decided ultimately case by case and at the king's discretion. For most of a king's lifetime, this is apart from 
Israel and in God's law. For most of a king's lifetime, his laws were kept secret. Ancient kings often tried to outdo their predecessors in image, economic power, political influence. This was often their motivation in setting forth law codes. How would you like to live under that system where laws were made on a case-by-case basis, they were kept secret, and they were generated not for the good of those who are governed, but to increase the power of the government. God gives his laws for our benefit. He said, going on, uh, God's law, however, viewed all human life as especially valuable because man is created in God's image. Thus, biblical law was more humane. It avoided mutilations and other savage punishments. Victims could not inflict more injury than they had received. Neither could criminals restore less than they had taken or stolen simply because of a class distinction. Everyone was equal before God's law. Brethren, this was revolutionary. This was a radical shift from what people were used to. The eye for an eye requirement of the Mosaic law was not a harsh statement that required cruel punishment. Instead, it was a mandate for equality before the law. Exodus 21:24. Each criminal had to pay for his own crime. Numbers 35:31. Under the law codes of some pagan nations, the rich often could buy their way out of punishment. God's law especially protected the defenseless orphan, widow, slave, and stranger from injustice. You know, we even use the eye for an eye principle today to sort of symbolize uh, vengeance and retribution and, and, and a sort of brutality in some cases. But it wasn't viewed that way. It was refreshing It was equality before the law. It meant fairness. It meant everyone had equal footing. Everyone had the same standard. It was refreshing. You know, think for a moment. What life would be like today if the Ten Commandments had never been given to a people? Because we understand that the, granted, our nations do not keep God's laws. They don't understand all the truth. And yet, this law has had a profound influence on principles that we are governed by. And one of those is equality before the law. Is it administered always totally fairly? Of course not. But... There is a certain level of freedom which comes straight out of the Bible. Imagine if the the Ten Commandments had never been given. And imagine if we were living under what I was describing of, of pagan kings today, where you don't know the laws, they're kept secret, they're made arbitrarily. We're blessed in this land and many countries around the world because of the equality under the law that God God gave to Israel. Going on, he says, the biblical law code or the Mosaic law was different from other ancient Near Eastern law codes in several ways. The biblical concept 
was that law comes from God, issues from his nature, and is holy, righteous, and good. Furthermore, at the outset of God's ruling over Israel at Sinai, God, the great king, gave his laws. God depicts his law as an expression of his love for his people. In Israel, all crimes were crimes against God. Consequently, he expected all his people to love and serve him. Biblical law is more than a record of human law. It is an expression of what God requires of man. It rests on the eternal moral principles that are consistent with the very nature of God himself. So his law is a reflection of his character. It's how God thinks. And how he thinks is everyone plays by the same rules. Brethren, how thankful are we for that? Going on in Leviticus 23 and verse 9. He says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So this small sheaf of barley was symbolizing Jesus Christ who died for our sins, for, for all mankind, who, was, who died and then who was raised to life so that all through him might have life. And this introduces the, the concept that there are harvests in the holy days. And the holy days reflected and walked through the harvest seasons of that, that land at that time. The first crop harvested, in the spring was the barley in early April. And that first fruit represented Christ. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15.20, I'll just read it. Uh, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So he was the first fruit. <clears throat> there were different crops that came in later during the year, as we know. The wheat was harvested in late May or early June, right about now, which is, I think, about the same as it is here in North Carolina. The, the wheat, my understanding is the wheat is about to be harvested now. What does that represent? Verse 15, he says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. Verse 21, you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So this is the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Pentecost that we are keeping today. And on this day, as Dr. Meredith explains in the Holy Day booklet, he says, on the day of Pentecost, or first fruits, they were to offer two wave loaves. It was stated that these wave loaves are the first fruits to the Lord. These first fruit loaves of bread evidently pictured both the Old Testament and New Testament people of God. 
since even the Old Testament prophets had the Holy Spirit of God. Again, one of the lessons of the first fruits is that God is only calling out a small number of people, the first fruits in this age. So this day does represent the saints called out today. Not yet the whole world, just a few, a very few. The, the Old Testament saints are represented in this day, as well as New Testament saints. The first fruits. Now let's think for a moment. First fruits, by definition, don't they sort of imply that there's something else coming? Tear the word apart. First fruits. I know this is complicated, but, you know, stay with me. First fruits. You know, if you're a gardener or a farmer or uh, raise an orchard, and you go out to your trees or to your garden or to your field, and you see the first few fruits that are coming, apples or figs or the tomatoes or the wheat or, or whatever. And it's exciting. <clears throat> and it's exciting to see that. And you're, you're overjoyed to see the first few uh, fruits come to, to be ripe. And they taste great. And it's wonderful. What do you do after you take those five figs or, you know, those tomatoes or whatever? What do you do? Well, of course, you knock off all the other unripe fruit, right? You destroy the plant because you don't want anything else after those first fruits. Nothing else could come close to the first fruits, right? Of course not. Frankly, the later harvest is much bigger. The first fruits are a taste of what's to come. The first fruits are a foretaste of more fruit. And a farmer or a gardener is excited about it. And the anticipation grows when those first fruits come. And they're not holding the rest in contempt. They're looking forward to the, the following harvest. And that's exactly what we see in the holy days. Notice in verse 22, it says, I'm sorry, in verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. We understand this is talking about Jesus Christ coming back to earth at the end time, putting down all rebellion, putting down all the ridiculousness, putting down all the corruption and all the inequality and all the partiality that human beings have to live under all over this earth. And Jesus Christ will put an end to it because he hates it, because he is... Impartial. He is not a respecter of persons. And he will implement his holy, perfect law and remove those who oppress and who deceive and hurt and are partial in the law. The rulers of this world. Verse 26. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that day. You shall, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, verse 32. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month that evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Of course, after Christ returns, he's going to capture Satan the devil and, and bind him and put him away. Put him under chains, remove him from mankind. The one who instigates the evil and the wickedness and the hurt and the misery. It will be over. He'll be put away. Then the millennium begins. Verse 34. He says, speak to the children of Israel, saying the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. A sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. We understand all mankind will will finally have the chance to live in a world of equity before the law. Everyone living by the same rules. Can you imagine it? What a wonderful world that will be. God giving them access to his spirit to to keep the, the law, to uphold the law, to understand the law, the, the letter and the spirit, but also living under the law of equity where everyone is judged by his own works, which is fair, which is just. In a time when thousands and millions of people will be converted and grow and will produce fruit. God is not biased. He does everything in his time. And he is looking forward to that harvest. To bring more people into the fold, into the family. As we know, the last great day is the ultimate testimony of God's fairness. You know, the world religions, the the mainstream Christian doctrine and traditions has no answer for what happens to the, the unsaved millions and billions. They have no answer for how can God be a just God and a loving God and yet allow some people never to have an opportunity at salvation. How can he be a, a loving and just God? Unbiased. And yet let, let billions burn in hell forever, never really having an opportunity to live differently and to show they, they want to live differently. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Because, you know, when you think about it, this is the ultimate test of God's impartiality. That he is giving everyone who has ever lived, who has ever been a human being, an opportunity to decide by their own choice, their own mind, and their own works, whether they want salvation or not. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. God is not a respecter of persons. The Napoleons will be there. 
and the countless unnamed people made in the image of God will be there as well. Standing before God and the books were opened. The books, they were made to understand God's law. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. You can't get more fair than that. Because that's the way God thinks. By the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. You know, brethren, if God is excited about the first fruits, the first few cherries that come off the tree, don't you think he is absolutely going to be thrilled Yes, by the millennium when millions and millions and billions of people are converted and changed and ultimately have a chance to enter his family, but especially the great white throne judgment period when perhaps tens or a hundred billion of his children are harvested. What a thrill! Everyone in his or her time. Christ, the first fruits, and then the process goes after that. Ultimately, when Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father and put an end to all rule and all power, <clears throat> and the Father will reign supreme. God is not, unbi- not biased, but actually work out in a tremendous plan, which gives everyone the same opportunity. What a privilege to understand that. And what an opportunity that we have to be a part of working that plan out and moving that plan forward. And that's why we're here. Why the first fruits? Just to be a part of the country club? Just to have the membership card? Just to have our name on the rolls, the exclusive group? Just to feel good about who we are and where we are and what we're doing, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. I'm sorry, but I've got to turn here again. Don't want to make you feel bad, but we have all got to see our calling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has called, chosen the foolish things of the world. Sorry to read that doesn't make us feel very good about ourselves, does it? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has... You know, Paul does not mince words. He, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, you know, we, we aren't... Here, because we're more talented and we're more with it and we've got more together. No, he says we're here because God happened to choose us for a purpose. Not because we're better, but God had to use somebody. So, here we are. The base things of the world, the things that are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things are. Why? that no flesh should glory in his presence. We are here because God is working out a plan. Some are first, 
Some come before others, not because we're better, but because God is working out a plan. We are preparing, we are training, we are getting ready for the next step of the plan. You know, Isaiah chapter 11 talks about how Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he will judge, not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He's going to come to earth and he's going to decide with fairness. He is not a respecter of persons. But brethren, as first fruits, as we're preparing to rule with him, we've got to be like him. We've got to learn to be different from this world. We've got to reflect him. We've got to resist the temptation to be biased, to be partial in our decisions. We've got to let God work through us in every aspect of life. And it's frankly not easy because we are emotional beings. We have tugs at our heart for those we are close to. And we don't have the same tugs for those who we're not close to. And sometimes we're partial. But if God is preparing us to rule, we're, we're going to have to be ready. And part of that is having his character. Notice what Moses told the Israelites when they were to choose leaders. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 13. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse, <clears throat> verse 13. He was talking about how he, he was delegating authority and blessing them and asking God to bless them. And finally, verse 12, he said, How can I alone bear your problems, your burdens, your complaints? Choose wise, verse 13, understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties, leaders of tens and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judge at that time, saying, Here are the cases between your brethren. Judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. You shall learn to be like God, Moses told him. Our job as first fruits is to, to do God's work and as we're doing that, we're getting ready to continue his work right into the millennium. And part of our job in that work at that time will be to, to judge and to rule and make decisions and help people and, and, and help them through problems and counsel and sometimes make decisions. And it doesn't come naturally as human beings to do it fairly. You know, Paul instructed Timothy in both his letters 
about how to be a good leader and how to do things in, in a proper and appropriate way. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. If we are given responsibility in this life, whatever it may be, we, we must do everything we can to exercise it with impartiality. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, he says, sort of summing up as all of the different things he had told them in, in, in leadership and, and working within the context of the church. He said, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. This is a fairly heavy weight behind what he's saying, don't you think? I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Paul said, Timothy, if you want to be successful, do what I say without partiality. Don't do it like the rulers of this world. You've got to be different. Don't make decisions just based on who is the recipient. They happen to be your friend. Don't just give opportunities to those who you're close to. <clears throat> you know, Dr. Meredith and Dr. Winnell and the ministerial conference that we had just a few weeks ago. In one of, again, one of the lectures, encouraged the ministry to be impartial in developing leadership, to not ordain their buddies. Or those they're close to. But that the ministry should determine by, by character and by competence. And by attitude and by ability. Not by partiality. You know it's interesting that Jesus even in his relationship with the disciples. There's an acknowledgement that sometimes there will be some we are closer to that we just have a natural affinity to. And apparently Jesus had a closer relationship to John. But isn't it interesting that he didn't automatically pick John to be the leader of the, of the apostles just because they were close? Now, he could have if he wanted to, but it's interesting that he didn't, that Peter wound up being that person and, and uh, it doesn't seem that he was as close to Peter as, as he was to John. You know, in our pastoral manual, <clears throat> it talks about in, in giving some guidelines and uh, advice about handling counseling issues. It says, be careful with issues that you are emotionally involved with, that you are close to one, of, one or other of the parties. And that there are times when it's in the best interest of everyone for a leader to excuse themselves from the situation because they're too close to it. It's very difficult to make a decision, an unbiased decision. We have that principle in, in, the, in, the, uh, in our justice, in our legal system today. We have where uh, if, a, if a judge <coughs> is economically 
tied to a person in a in a case well they will be they will be recused i think is the word from that situation or if there are other ties there are principles and paul was telling timothy be careful and do nothing with partiality when you are a leader what about in our other relationships notice in james chapter 2 and verse 1 <clears throat> james chapter 2 and verse 1 and the point is we are we are preparing to rule we are in the process of, of doing god's work and and furthering god's work and we're a part of the the next harvest we're already preparing to help the next harvest to be harvested in but in order to do that we've got to be like god we've got to think like him and we've got to to have character like him james chapter 2 and verse 1 my brethren do not hold the faith of our lord jesus christ the lord of glory with partiality for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man you stand there or sit here at my footstool you don't even get a chair you know um, sorry have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen my beloved brethren has god not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him now does god is the lesson here that god wants us to come to church in filthy clothes of course not but he does want us to see value in every human being the whole plan of salvation shows that that he sees value in every human being and he says i want you to be like me and the fact that he's preparing us to help him bring other human beings into his family shows that he sees value in all of us. We've got to make sure that we see it in each other, not just in those that we are we are close to. You know, it's not a matter that he takes lightly. Notice in uh, James chapter 2 and verse 8, he says if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He says partiality is sin. Holding up one person as somehow more important than another, it's wrong. It's contrary to God's, God's thinking doesn't matter, mean we don't have roles sometimes. It doesn't matter, mean we don't have to make judgments sometimes based on, based on actions. But we respect one another as being made in the image of God and having the potential to be in God's family. And that he wants each and every person that he has made in his family. <clears throat> Number three, what about in the family? In the home, it, it sometimes can be a challenge to to be even-handed with our children. We we saw this in the example of Esau and Jacob. We see that in other examples in the Bible. You know, remember the story of Joseph 
Remember that really, really nice coat that Jacob got him? How did that make the other brothers feel? It said they hated him even more. You know, as parents, we've got to be very, very careful that we do everything we can to to be fair. Mr. Weston explained this in a sermon, I think, what, a a year or two ago, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, entitled, Why Kids Go Astray. If you missed it, I'd recommend you hear it. If you heard it, I'd recommend you listen to it again. Um, He says to parents that children have a heightened sense of unfairness, of hypocrisy. They've got their hypocrisy meter up, you know, at all times. And they can sense it, especially when it, you know, when it applies towards someone else. It, it, it does, it's amazing how that meter does not go off. But when it applies to themselves, whoa, it uh, starts clanging. You know, he explains it. It doesn't mean that everything is always equal. Sometimes there are different circumstances. Sometimes we give responsibilities to different children at different times based on the, the circumstance, uh, their maturity or ability to handle it, whatever. But he said, even though things are maybe not always exactly equal, they must be fair. And children can sense that. And we need to explain that. And we need to help them to see that. You know, we, we saw the devastation in the family of Isaac and, and Rebekah, when they did not practice this. One author describes it this way. He says, There was great potential in this family of Isaac and Rebekah. They can enrich each other and broaden each other's lives, yet things will never be easy with two such boys who were so, so different. It will require all the resources of wisdom, patience, love of both parents united together, praying together to keep control and to win success in the end. Holding together such a family will require from each parent an effort to see each particular child as a special gift from God to be held with care and attempt to be fair always to both and to make each feel at home with them. Instead, we read the fateful verse, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The parents fail to provide the background of justice on which all true community and family life must be founded. They each champion a favorite. They allow the boys to divide them. As a result, they further divide the boys and break apart what they are meant to unite. Isaac especially is blamed for carelessly demonstrating his partisanship for Esau when the boy comes home from hunting with venison. Jacob grows up to realize that nothing he can do can please his father as Esau does. Rebekah tries to compensate and complicates affairs. Of course, the venison is a trivial matter. But within the family where human hearts are sensitive, there are often no trivial matters. Brethren, as parents, we're not perfect. And we are a work in progress. And... We are, our parenting is a work in progress. And these are real life challenges and, and, and hopefully the drama is, is not quite the same in our home as it was in there in Genesis. But we still face similar situations. 
where we have to make choices. We are training as first fruits to administer justice and equity to the whole world. How are we doing it at home? You know, Ephesians chapter 6 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. What's one of the quickest ways that we can provoke our children to wrath? Being unfair, being biased, being partial, not being even-handed. We've been given a tremendous opportunity and calling. Not because God is partial, he's giving salvation to all who want it, but because he is working out a plan and he's called us. Why? We don't know. We don't know why he's called us. But if we refuse it, he'll use someone else. That we do know. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to read most of Acts chapter 2 because I wanted to leave one part of Scripture for Mr. League this afternoon having to do with Pentecost. I appreciated Mr. Frank uh, this earlier in the sermonette talking about the different nations that were represented on the day of Pentecost, talking about how already the truth was all over the world. God's laws was all over the world at that time. And God was already working with people all around the known world at that time. Because He is not limited and He is not limiting. He wants to save everyone if they are willing. And He's willing to use people in the process. Not because we're more important, but because He's got a plan. After Peter delivered this message and those who were listening were convicted and stricken with guilt, they asked, what shall we do? And look what he said. Acts 2 and verse 38. He said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You know, we just had a baptism, yes, not yesterday, but Friday, a really thrilling event. It's amazing to be in the presence of and a part of the process where a sinner repents. And it says that the Father and Jesus Christ and the angels rejoice when one sinner repents and comes to that point in their life. But I also want to direct this last thing that we just read here to our young people however you define that if you consider yourself a young a young people go ahead and and listen he said the promise the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off as many as our lord god will call you know the discussion of the first fruits includes you young people you are not excluded from this Dr. Jeff Fall, in his booklet, Successful Parenting God's Way, he says this, A Christian's children have a special blessing. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians that a child with even one converted Christian parent is holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14, sanctified. 
which means that such a child is unique in God's sight and has been set apart. And for those children who see the light in their youth and turn fully to their God, what an amazing future they have. God offers to be their parent and their partner for life, guiding them through every decision and milestone in their life, just like a loving physical father. The result will be better marriages, stronger families, peaceful and stable minds, and birth into the very family of God at Christ's return. They will have the opportunity to work with Jesus Christ himself as he establishes his kingdom and brings peace to the earth. Cities will be rebuilt God's way without pollution or crime or the blight of overcrowded inner city slums. Our children can have the opportunity of being in on this worldwide transformation of this new age. Now, young people, you may feel like God is not really calling you because God called your parents. And you may feel like it's really not real. Because your parents are the ones who came out of the world. The parents were the ones who were keeping Easter and Christmas and Halloween and all those things. And you may want to try the world. Or you may think that you'll just come back later. You may think that, well, I'll just wait till the second resurrection. You can do that. You can walk away from the truth. You can walk away from God's way. You can try the world. No one's going to stop you. You can take your chances. You can rely on your own wits out there. You can gamble that all the Bible says about the tribulation and the day of the Lord And the coming heartache and hardship is not real. You can gamble that you'll come back. You can do that. But you know, it's like finding that you have a wealthy relative. Suddenly you get a a letter in the mail. That you are a relative of someone who has decided to leave their whole estate to you. Let's say it's a million dollars. No, a million dollars doesn't mean anything. A hundred million dollars, okay? A hundred million dollars. You get a letter in the mail and, and all you have to do is show up. And it's all going to you. You know, you can say, it's not really mine because that other relative earned all that money. You know, I'll never feel like that hundred million dollars is is really mine. Wouldn't most people feel that way, you know? I, I just, I don't know. I just can't quite answer that call because ah, it just doesn't feel real to me. It's not really me that's being called. Our Father and the destiny and the promise that He's offering to all of you and all of us is much worth much greater than a hundred million dollars. You know, in the future we will have tremendous wealth. We won't be focused on that. 
but certainly there will be a lot of wealth in the kingdom. But more importantly, we will have a chance to change the world. You, young people, have a chance to change the world. You can grab onto it with both hands, like that $100 million check. You can ask your parents for guidance. You can ask other adults in the church to answer your questions. You can ask the ministry, those you feel comfortable talking with. You can talk to God about it because the promise is to you too. That's what Acts chapter 2 says. It's real. You're not an add-on. It's real. Not because God thinks you're more important than your friends, but neither does He think you're less important than your friends. He just happened to give you a chance to do something really special. The choice is yours. Brethren, we are special. Just like everyone else. We are unique. Just like everyone else. We are beloved by God, of God. Just like everyone else. But on this day of Pentecost, we learn that not like everyone else, God has for whatever reason given us and put us in a position that not everyone else has to fulfill a job, to do a role. And as We mentioned before, if we don't do it, he'll find someone else. But who in their right mind would refuse the blessing of working directly with our Father? Let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, I quoted this at the beginning. Let's, Let's read it as we wrap it up here. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, re- rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, and precious, you also as living stones, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The whole world will obtain mercy. If they want it, they will be called into the light. If they want it, the lesson of Pentecost is not that we are better than them, but we have the honor of taking the gospel to them. And what an honor that is. No, God is not partial nor is he biased, nor is he a respecter of persons. For his own reasons, he's chosen us to accomplish a part of his plan. Let's be thankful. Let's rejoice. Let's let Christ live in us and change us to his image. 
And as we observe this day of Pentecost, let's let him put his impartial, unbiased, just, and equitable heart and mind in us so we can fulfill our job and we can accomplish the mission that he has given to us as first fruits, not favorites.